0: Visit myflexlearning.com backslash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash B-E. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet? podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes, so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place, now and for future generations. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 51 of the Are They 18 Yet? podcast. In this episode, I share the second half of my conversation with my friend and colleague, Brittany Bohatch. As I said before, the reason I wanted to interview Brittany for the podcast is because we have had a lot of interesting conversations about neurodiversity as neurodivergence ourselves and she did share a little bit about that in the first half of the conversation that she was diagnosed with ADHD earlier this year and and I have also mentioned in the past that I have a couple diagnoses myself that's another conversation for another day but we have had a lot of interesting conversations about ableism and how it applies to what we do as SLPs and also just how it affects us as we live our lives And go through different coaching and professional experiences ourselves. So, I thought this would be a really interesting conversation to have because, as somebody who is very aware of all of these things over the years, it has become apparent to me that I might need to shift some of my perspectives in the way that I think about treating clients. And so, in the second half of the conversation, if you listen to the first half, which was episode 50, um, if you haven't done that yet, definitely go back and listen to it. But we talked a lot about how in classrooms, in a lot of the educational settings, how we place a lot of demands on kids. Brittany talked especially about some of the demands that are placed on some of the preschoolers that she has worked with in the past, and some of the, quote, negative behaviors, and I use those air quotes lightly, some of the negative behaviors that have come up during those situations are due to the fact that kids have a lot of demands placed on them that they're not ready for. And this is not to say that they might not eventually be able to tolerate those situations and learn new skills and continue to develop and be able to be resilient across a number of different situations that have some different challenges. It's not to say that kids won't be able to do that eventually or that we can't move them closer to that, but It's just important, as you probably know, if you listen to the first half of the conversation, it's important to meet kids where they're at and figure out what's the next level that we can push them to that's going to help challenge them in a way that's not traumatizing to them, that makes them hate school, and frustrate us in the process of trying to get them there. So it's really about understanding the concept of scaffolding. What scaffolding is, is it literally means support. If you think about scaffolding in a building, it's the the foundation and the support that keeps the building from falling over. So when we're talking about scaffolding, when it comes to learning, we're talking about supports along the way. So this can come in a number of different ways. It can be the adult strategically structuring the task so that it's gradually getting more and more difficult over time and finding that balance between just enough challenge to move the child forward but not so much that they hit a wall with their frustration threshold but not too little so that it's not challenging at all and they're bored and they're not moving forward and growing so part of scaffolding is just strategically moving up that hierarchy and finding ways to make the task gradually more challenging over time and then along the way one of the things that you can do is provide some additional supports in the process to help guide them through. So that that help along the way is also a form of scaffolding. And when it comes to dealing with challenging sensory situations, in this episode, we talk about some specific examples that both of us have worked through. Brittany talks about some specific examples with the younger population, so kids who are preschool-aged and does give a little bit of context for how you can apply that to working with older students. And then I also share a specific example of an older student who I worked with from the early elementary years all the way through high school, what happened with him with a specific situation that the staff were able to scaffold and help him to improve his level of tolerance of a challenging situation for him. So these are just some specific tangible examples that you can use to apply some of the things that we talked about in episode 50, because you probably want some specific examples of how we can support kids in these situations that are non-preferred or that are just overstimulating for them from a sensory perspective, or just that are challenging and maybe might cause some mental roadblocks along the way. Because we know that being uncomfortable is necessary for learning, but it's uncomfortable and it's When you are a child growing up, you don't have those executive functioning skills to problem solve, and you haven't had enough challenging situations that you've worked through, it can be easy to want to give up. And that's where the adults come in and provide that structure to help move kids along so that they can continue to make progress and eventually learn the skills that they need in order to live good lives. So before I get into the episode, remember that if you want a specific tool that will help you to work through this process of scaffolding, providing support and guiding those conversations when kids come up with those mental roadblocks when they're potentially working through a situation that they perceive to be challenging. I do outline a specific protocol for handling these day-to-day tasks that come up in the time tracking journal. So this tool is appropriate for kids that are at least early elementary age. They've gotta be able to have somewhat of a conversation about the task that they're doing. And it will really just give you a step-by-step process that you can use when you find that a child is not completing a certain task that requires multiple steps. Sometimes as adults, it's easy to take for granted all of the steps in these simple day-to-day processes that maybe our kids are not necessarily understanding yet. That is probably one of the key takeaways that people have shared with me when they've used the time tracking journal is that they don't realize how many steps all of these little things are that they are asking their kids to do throughout the day. Even simple things like getting dressed or brushing your teeth or getting a bowl of cereal, those all require steps. So if you find that those day-to-day tasks are difficult to get through, then I highly recommend you check out the Time Tracking Journal. All you need to do to get that resource is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. So for now, let's get back to the second half of the interview with pediatric speech pathologist Brittany Bohatch as we talk about scaffolding. <music> Boundaries are good. It's, it's good to provide those bumpers, but at the same time, it, it can't be too rigid that it's just traumatizing, as you said.
1: And another instance that came up in the classroom where I was recently was at snack time. So again, dealing with, yeah. with preschoolers coming in, the expectation from the staff was that the student at 1030, we're going to sit down and have your goldfish in your juice box at the table. And you have to sit for the duration of your snack. You have 15 minutes to eat it. Um, and if you don't, if you walk away from the table, if you want to go play something and then come back. We can't have you um, take a nibble and go away, take a nibble, go away. You need to sit down and that's your chance. Um, The kids that I was working with had a really hard time meeting that standard because it's a lot of demands. It's the adult's timing. It's the adult place. They had to work for the work, quote unquote, work for their, their snack to be open, to say open, help, whatever. That's fine. But it's just acknowledging that there are so many demands on that Um, because they are coming from a home environment where they're probably walking around with their snack or they can eat it and come back or um, graze and have access to goldfish all day versus the expectation at school that this is snack time, this is your chance. If you don't want it, if you walk away from the table, that's communicating you don't want it. But just just navigating that with the staff because they, they had so many kids that were not able to meet that standard so they're opening snacks and then throwing them away, how, like going from having free reign at home and access to snacks all, all the time and, and grazing to like so sitting at the table with with their parameters and this is your chance, it was a really far jump. Um, so that was something that that we kind of talked about. Like, are we able to be lenient? So if, if this is what they're doing at home, how can we take one step toward the expectations of boundaries at snack time at school instead of going from like zero to sixty, and then wondering why they're screaming, crying, walking away from the table, not finishing their snack, uh, or, or trying to to get out of that—that that they're communicating that they're not able to meet that. Yeah, uh, that that's on
0: us to accommodate. I think the whole uh, where they're at and what's going on at home is really important because I know that people who have specialize in feeding would definitely have issue with the free reign to snacks. For a lot of reasons, especially when you have kids who have sensory issues, it might not be safe for them to be just walking around. And even just from a just a standpoint of having good habits for for eating, you know, paying attention to your food that it that is ideally you should be you shouldn't be multitasking and getting up. And so obviously the teachers had the right intention there where we do want to sit and focus and eat because eating is a sensory experience you need to be focused especially if you have kids who probably have a hard time manipulating different textures so mm-hmm. yeah like that would be i imagine that the ideal situation would be to be working with parents there and i know that it can get hard when you're on the go and you're just you know giving kids kids food but but yeah it is a a big jump when it's a total, like you said, zero to sixty. So, how do you navigate that when you know that there is something in that specific example having free reign and being able to just nibble and leave and like that 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 can be potentially problematic, but at the same time, you know that they're just not there yet. Like, what would be the ideal next step when you have a child who just can eat whenever they want at home and they're walking around with food and they do have some issues with textures where they probably should be sitting and focusing when they're eating, but they're just not there yet. Like what's the next step to move them in the right direction there?
1: That really is a, a team conversation. So parents are, an integral part of that, the teachers too. So I think the expectations are definitely different for mealtime or snack time at school versus at home. So getting parents to see where the educators are coming from and also the educators to see where the parents are coming from Here's we've got these two worlds and it's got to be really confusing for a little one to say, like, this is what I do at home, but this doesn't work Mm -hmm. here. So I'm going to get upset because I'm confused. Yeah. Um, so making sure that people are on the same page, but they are inherently different scenarios. There, there's nuance and it's complicated. And, um, but I, I think that having those conversations to say, here's where they are, what can we do to make it a, an easier transition between home and school expectations? Like, but the idea that they are going to sit down at 10 30 and, open their snack and willingly sit in their chair and finish all of their goldfish and all of their juice box and throw it away by 10:45 is a stretch that is a lot of demand so it's it's the time it's the the sitting it's the non prefer it might be non preferred if it, they don't like their snack but yeah like um picking up on those those cues what are they communicating that they're not able to to meet but I do understand from a school perspective that the expectation is to sit in the designated spot. This is meal time. Like once they get to first, second, third grade, they've got 30 minutes to eat their lunch. And then if they don't, then they're hungry for the rest of the day. They don't get another chance to snack. That is not an acceptable um, yeah. accommodation. I mean, it, it could be um, if, if that's truly the case. But for the majority of kids, like it's this is your chance: eat or go hungry. Mm-hmm. And they're training them for that. But it's dealing with that with a sense of grace and understanding that some students aren't able to meet that expectation. So it could be an accommodation that they have access to snacks or that they have extended meal time, or, or something like that. But it's, it is tricky to navigate that, especially when there's judgment and um, expectation from a parent or from a teacher that this is how they have to do it. And this is the way that it has to be because... That's what everybody else does. If this is what is expected later down the line, that gets hard to navigate. So just really yeah. having those conversations is key.
0: Yeah. And I mean, even just saying, okay, we here's where we're at. We know that there could be some potential issues with that because of safety, because of just, you know, good meal time habits and having a healthy relationship with food. So maybe we're not going to expect. 15 minutes. Maybe we're just going to give them some of their snack and it's going to take them two or three minutes and they're going to sit down and eat it. And if they want to get up and take a break and come back, they can, we're not going to take it away, but we're just going to expect them to do a little bit at a time instead of just the whole time. And then maybe the next day, oh, well we can, maybe they're able to sit for longer. And in that way, you know, obviously you have to meet kids where they're at with developmentally, maybe they're not going to be able to buy kindergarten, do exactly what the rest of the kids are doing, but you're working towards that for, you know, for their benefit. So they're at least going in the right direction. Sure. And, or it could be
1: that they have three minutes for this snack. And once they get up from the table, that communicates that I'm, that that I'm done. Right. Yeah. Maybe they're good. Like, yeah. Right. So, um, or like teaching them like all done. Um, but getting them to know what, once they communicate that, that their actions and their communication is powerful. Once they leave, then that means that their snack is all done for the day. And it's put away versus if they're asking for it, if they're showing that they're hungry, if they're clawing at their backpack, that they want to get their snack out, that's communication too. Like, Oh, you're hungry that's reasonable for a three-year-old. Let's get it out again. But once you leave, like training them that it's okay, we put it away versus, oh, it comes back to the table. Okay. Once you leave, you are done. But having kids that are more infantile, that they don't have that level of communication intent yet, um, or that they're not, they're not connecting that yet. It is unreasonable to expect them to be able to, to meet that expectation, yeah. Um, so just managing that for each individual kid. So what works for one kid within a classroom might not work for for the next and, and just just managing that so it's again the ableism that you should be able to sit and and have this in 15 minutes and like it. and uh, that is an expectation that is just not going to be met. And if we try to force that as educators, we're going to end up frustrated trying to to fit a square peg into a round hole sort of thing. Yeah um,
0: I just I see that so often. Well, I think even with, with the food example, I know we've kind of gone down this, but um, I just, it is an interesting conversation because so many kids with the sensory issues where you think, oh, I don't, I don't like this food, but I can eat it versus I, they literally cannot eat it. I mean, they'll gag or, or whatever. And with the whole meeting the standards, well, yeah, we want them to sit and eat because that is could be something that ensures that they get adequate nutrition, but we're not doing it because this is what everybody's doing and this is the way we do it around here. It's we're going to get them to sit and focus because this is what's going to help them to get the nutrition that they need or be able to tolerate textures more safely. It's not about the motivation isn't you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing cuz it's what's best for that particular person. And maybe they don't ever sit and eat their lunch in 20 minutes like everybody else, but we've gotten to the, to their point where we have a situation for them. I think that's important to realize as well, because maybe we're trying to get them to increase their tolerance, but the point is not to get them to be just like everybody else for the sake of being like everybody else. It's just to, improve their level of functioning so that they can have a better life. So maybe it's okay that they have their snacks spaced out throughout the day. And and that's just what we do for them versus, you know, whatever, whatever they, the goal is of sitting for 15 minutes or whatever. I think just sometimes asking why, why do I want them to do this? Because if it's just, this is what we've already done. Well, that might not be a good reason. If it's well, we're wanting to increase their level of functioning because this is something that's going to help their development. It's going to help them function. It's going to be good for their health or whatever. I mean, to me, that, that is, that's the way that I would problem solve in that situation to figure out, okay, am I challenging in a good way? Or am I challenging in a way that's just not for the right reasons? I hear you. And
1: the way that I tend to like to have these conversations, ideally again, goes back, back to Dr. Ross Green. He's had really, um, his information has really had a profound way, a uh, mm-hmm. profound effect on the way that I um, view these sort of scenarios. Um, but I think his method is called collaborative and proactive solution CPS. CPS. And the way that I think about it, it's there's plan a plan B and plan C for when. Um, I think it's there's a a lagging skill comes up and an expectation that is not able to be met. And that's when a quote unquote behavior comes up or a a dilemma um, or opportunity. And plan A would be to force them and say, this is what you're doing and you have no say and this is what I say. It's a compliance based sort of thing Mm -hmm. versus plan C is you drop the expectation and just let it go. Plan B is sort of a happy medium, which yeah. in, in an IEP setting or a, an educational setting, it comes up to, huh, I'm noticing that they're, um, the student is not able to attend at snack time. I'm noticing this. And with a, a student that's able to participate in that, you include them for an older student, perhaps. I'm noticing that you're not able to X, Y, Z. What's up? So you ask them what's going oh. on. But for younger kids, you infer, I'm noticing this is going on. What's what's going on? What's underneath of that? And then it's OK. I have a concern about m- making sure that you get fed. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about you having um, food in your tummy to be able to get through the school day and focus. I'm concerned about you nourishing your body. I'm concerned about the time constraint because we have 30 minutes for you to eat. And if you don't do that, you can't eat later in the day. Um, a child's concern might be, I don't like the cafeteria or I don't want what's yeah. in my lunchbox or I'm already full from breakfast. I don't want to eat. So I'm going to what looks like goof off and quote unquote cause trouble because I'm bored. I'm, I'm already full. I don't want it. They pack me a yucky lunch. There are so many things that go into that. Yeah. Um, but it's valid each person's concern. Or the, uh, a therapist's concern might be, you need to focus and eat safely because this is, this is hard work for your body yeah. um, with your swallowing um, impairment, perhaps. So the, a, a teacher might have different um, concerns. A student has different concerns. A therapist or a parent has different concerns. Well, why aren't you eating your lunch? You really like ham sandwiches. Why don't you like it today? And it, it, it's also nuanced um, and complex. And it's dynamic. It changes. But really having those conversations from a, I'm noticing here are my concerns. How can we come to a solution together that, that meets as many needs as possible? Mm -hmm. Um, Having a conversation like that, rather than either completely like foregoing any expectation and having it be a free for all, which sometimes is, is the option. If it's a really emotional sort of situation and until you can come to a place where you're able to plan B. Or versus Plan A, like you're going to do it. it it's not comfortable, so I, I tend to want to be in the B land, yeah. um, and and have those conversations. That's what feels comfortable for me when I have a problem, rather than somebody forcing me to to do something or completely just dropping their expectation. How can we come to a happy medium? Here are my
0: concerns. What are your concerns? How do we How do we navigate that? The end result might look more like a Plan C or a Plan A because maybe once you talk about it you realize that this person who had this expectation you realize you know what maybe maybe this is the best option or or maybe it's the other way where it's you know what this is just not this whole thing is just not worth it we're just going to drop it so i would imagine yeah. that you go with the plan b mindset and sometimes it might swing one way or the other and sometimes it might be right in the middle where you're doing it but it's mm-hmm. you've reduced the demands there are sometimes when it's for safety,
1: like seatbelts, yeah. kind of a non-negotiable or what? like, like a seatbelt. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seat belts are non-negotiable. How can I, or, but then you plan B. So the thing, my concern is we do have to wear seatbelts because it's the law and keep you safe in the car. Yeah. I, I understand that it's uncomfortable for you. How can I make it more comfortable? Do you need preparation? Do you need a, a piece of of fabric on it to make it more comfortable? Do you need a break from it? Do I something along those lines, but like plan A is a, I'm going to force you to do it. And you don't get a say plan B is more, here's a boundary. How can we make it more comfortable for you? Cause I hear you. It's no fun to be strapped into something you don't want to be, but here's the thing.
0: Yeah. 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 I think that, some things, some things I would imagine would le- would swing mm-hmm. one way or the other just because of, like you said, safety and or sometimes yes. it's, I mean, time. You've got to be somewhere and right. we don't we don't have time to do whatever. And I'm sorry, you're just gonna have to sit there for <laughs> right. five minutes or whatever. And or
1: I hear you and validating, like I hear you're upset. Yeah, like, like I'm I sorry. Know, Here's the thing, or yeah. or plan C sometimes is okay too. Like you just drop it because you don't have the spoons to to go down that road. Like I don't have the energy to uh, hold that that line. Is that a hill I really want to die on? That's also dynamic. It could change day to day. Like yeah. I just I don't have the energy to with um to hold that boundary or because it none of them are, are bad. But when I feel like when kids are always told like the plan A, like you do it because I say so. I'm the adult, you don't get a say. Um or just completely dropping expectations. So they don't have parameters for how we interact or what the expectations are. Uh, that's really uncomfortable. So no wonder a lot of our kids are showing quote unquote behavior challenges because they, they, they don't have the skills to navigate that. And they're being told that this is the way it has to be. And you, you don't get any input in it. I would be pissed off too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it's less about what the end outcome ends up being, and it's more about how you get there. Like sometimes you end up doing whatever it is you originally intended on doing. Personally, if I have to do something I don't want to do and somebody's giving me a hard time about it, that just makes it worse. But if someone's like, yeah, I know it sucks, at least I'm like, okay, at least I feel heard. That helps. Sometimes that might not be enough, but sometimes just hearing that, just hearing Mm -hmm. that someone hears you and sees you, that was something, uh, it was Daniel Siegel, the book that I was, I think that he, he said it in, and I'm sure he says it in some of his other works is just that children want to feel felt just you connect, you redirect it. It's not necessarily that you're not holding them to a certain standard or asking them to do things. It's just sometimes just the Hey, I know, I know it's out in here. I'm sorry. I don't have anywhere else for you to go right in this moment in the, you mm-hmm. know, and maybe in the future, it's okay. We can, we can leave or whatever, but sometimes you just have to work through it. I had a student who he, he was autistic and he could not handle the fire drills and they would usually do them at about 10 a.m. And it got so bad that he would just be so just out of sorts the whole rest of the day if there was a fire drill, because it was really loud. And it got to the point where it was it was kind of a plan C. It wasn't a OK, we're going to go take a walk. It was his parents said, when are the fire drills? We're sending him at 1015. Like he's not coming to school until the fire drill is over. And they did that for a year or two. And they we kept revisiting it. And it was like. OK, and, and there were all sorts of situations for that student where it was, all right, here's a scenario. What are my options? Can I handle it? What can we do? And a lot of times with the fire drill thing, it was I'm not ready yet. I can't handle it. And this is when he's in, I think, third, fourth grade. So, you know, I mean, still definitely he, he could verbalize that. But um, sometimes he still had a hard time coming up with the language to explain certain things like that. And eventually he did get to the point where he can handle fire drills now, but it was this gradual process. Eventually it was, I think the next step was, okay, we're going to come to school, but the the aide is going to take you for a walk around the building. You are not going to be in the building when this happens. And we're just going to leave and we're going to come back and you know what's going on, but you're, you don't have to be here. And then it got to the point where he was just able to tolerate it. And I'm not sure about all the different levels that they had to go through, whether it was, okay, we're not coming. And then it was, okay, we're gonna go for a walk. And then it was, we're going to be in the building and we're going to talk about it. And you're going to know in advance so that we can prepare before and after and give you a chance to take a walk after if you're, you know, whatever, dysregulated. But then eventually I think all he needed was just knowing when it was going to be. And that's huge. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that it, it was never, it wasn't this thing where there was always an openness to the possibilities on all ends. He never said it was never to him, you know, we're not ever going to do this, but it was also not forced. Like you have to do this by a certain time or else kind of a thing. And, in that way it just, you know, he he was able to figure it out and, and maybe some students might not get to that point where it's okay to be in the building when the fire drill is going off because his parents were kind of like, you know, everybody's, oh, you have to do the fire drill because you have to know what's going to happen if there's a fire. Well, most of the students, all the other students in the building know what to do when there's a fire. And his parents were like, if there was really a fire in the school, we trust that you would get them out of the building. You know, one student not knowing how to line up exactly the right way, it'll be okay. And so, yeah. you know, one of those types of situations where, yeah, obviously fire drills are a safety thing, but there would be enough going on. There would be somebody there that would physically get them out of the building if the if it was on fire. <laughs>
1: It sounds like that was a really successful way to navigate that scenario because it doesn't yeah, sound yeah. like they invalidated him. I don't like fire drills either. It's uncomfortable. The the ones in my school were very like piercing. They were piercing loud oh, yeah. and it's, it, it's not invalidating that that is how his sensory system processes. That is probably really overwhelming and traumatic. So like, again, having trauma-informed um, folks on the case to like, it's like, Oh, I get that. That's really uncomfortable. I can see how that is feeling really icky in your body. And then taking the incremental step going from like, we're not going to come to school on the day that they have a fire drill versus like, okay, we're here. This is going to happen at 10 o'clock. So this is happening at eight o'clock that you were like um, psyching him up, like saying it is okay. Like we're going to be outside the building, and all of the other students are going to hear. It. So you hear it from a distance. It's it sounds like that was a really successful incremental approach to get where he's like, okay, I know that uh, a fire drill is not super comfortable, but as long as I know it's going to happen, it's okay. Like I can handle it because he's had successful ways of managing that really overwhelming stimulus. Um, in a way that feels good for him, but it was—it doesn't sound like there was an expectation of, well, you're in third grade, you should handle this, and that's where the ableism comes in. Everybody else can handle this. Why? Why is it such an issue for you? Or the students that that cry, scream, and go into panic mode when that happens, being invalidated. Like, come on, I don't have time to deal with your nonsense. Let's go outside. If this were a fire, like that, adds to the trauma. Uh, for a lot of our learners so having a team that that validates that like I get you it's okay like do you think that he wants to be screaming crying carrying on no he that is his body's response to this really overwhelming thing so having a team of parents and professionals on on that level together is is where it happens and that can happen for academics it can happen for just getting to school navigating things with peers like it comes from too. the adults need to be regulated within themselves and mm. um, kind of themselves be like hmm yeah i don't like i don't like fire drills either or it's really hard when a peer doesn't want to play with me it's hard getting rejected it's hard um managing xyz but that comes from an adult having compassion And a lot of times they do, but sometimes it gets lost in the shuffle. Um, But having kindness for yourself and empathizing, relating like, yeah, that's a really crappy scenario. I'm sorry. How can I help you? Rather than, come on, let's go. You should be better at this by now. Get over it.
0: Yeah. To get over it. I mean, that is, I just, I don't respond to that personally. (laughs) Me neither. It Um, feels icky. Yeah, it does. It's just, it's super dismissive. And I mean, even in that situation, I would say that it was it was structured by the adults with his him involved in the process. You know, the adults were the ones that were scheduling the time when we go through our board of scenarios that we go through. And and then he's he's talking about it in that way in when he's an adult. He's had an adult guide those discussions for him, initiate those discussions about this particular scenario. So now he's gone through that process with somebody supporting him and having those conversations. So you would hope that in theory, he could apply that and at least, and know how to do that in another situation, you know, like, I mean, that's, it's a, it's modeling that the adults are providing the structure of, okay, you know, when we work on it and the conversations and how those conversations are going, but at the same time, the child is still involved in, the discussion and and the decision-making and they're heard in that process and all of that. Um, but even
1: tying it into communicating, yeah. like, can he communicate? This is uncomfortable. I don't yeah. like this. This is what's going on in my body. That is a functional communication thing. That is how we should be supporting our students within a school. Um, can he communicate? Can he advocate for himself? Can he identify when, um, when does this, or how can I communicate when this happens in my body or when I need help or rec- recognizing when he needs assistance or he needs a break or something like that, mm-hmm. that is such a, a more impactful way to help him with communication rather than run of the mill therapy goals that I see.
0: So right. I know we're running up against the time that you have to go, um, So I want to be respectful of your time, but are there, before we wrap up, what is, let's see, how do I, how do I phrase this question? Do you have any parting wisdom when it comes to teachers, therapists, or parents who want to be good advocates for, for kids um, Hmm. when it comes to this whole topic?
1: Again, it's the Dr. Ross Green, um, super impactful for me and approaching um, situations to navigate from a lens of collaboration, having those conversations with the the objective being, how can we help this student, meet, meet them where they are, um, not getting into the territorial things or any judgmental sort of things. So coming at it neutrally, how can we help this student, leaving um, intense emotions out of it as much as possible. Um, but really collaborating as a team, uh, using things like I noticed this at home, I noticed this at school, Mm -hmm. um, and, um, really listening and validating the student's perspective or what we infer to be their, their, um, perspective if they're not able to communicate it directly, um, just including everyone in the process, um, is is really key?
0: Yeah. Well, where can if people want to reach out to you? Where can people find you? Do you have a website? Yeah, I'm
1: I'm on Instagram. Uh, my practice is called Satellite Pediatric Therapy Services. Um, I um, will post things on occasion from from this lens because um, I think that these are important conversations for us to have, and I um, I incorporate this into my practice. But just expressing that, I think the world needs to hear more of of this sort of perspective. So yeah, um, find me on Instagram. Yeah. And what, what
0: states are you licensed in?
1: I'm currently licensed in Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. So anybody who's interested in finding a therapist in the Pennsylvania area, or just connecting with you, getting some information or just, yeah, having, asking some questions, then they can reach out to you and we will link to all of your your Instagram. Well, I guess just your Instagram account and we'll also link to Ross Green as well because you've mentioned him a number of times. So perfect. Happy to connect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. This wraps up our interview. Thank you so much for listening. Again, remember, if you want a tool that's going to help you guide conversations and scaffold during day-to-day tasks that require complex planning and problem solving, or even those day-to-day tasks that to you don't seem like they require complex tasks and problem solving, but maybe to your kids that they do because of the amount of demands that are being placed on them that they might not be ready for yet, or maybe they have potential to do the task, but they just haven't quite built up the skills yet to do it, then definitely check out the Time Tracking Journal to work through any of these scenarios with your kids. The Time Tracking Journal outlines a strategy that helps you to build the executive functioning your kids need during those simple day-to-day tasks that come up during daily routines to help you get you through your day without any of these challenging behaviors that we have talked about. And again, I use the term challenging behaviors loosely because a lot of times when we see those behaviors, it's because we are asking kids to do something that they don't know how to do and maybe they aren't quite sure how to ask for help and they just know that, Whatever they're doing is hard and they don't want to do it. So we need to give them those skills that they need to be resilient and work through those tasks so that they can be productive human beings. So to check out the Time Tracking Journal, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's Brandon.com backslash time journal. Again, this tool is great for older kids who are at least in elementary school, But if you do have some younger kids and you have some situations where you're wondering, am I placing too many demands on this child at once? And you're wondering how you can meet them where they're at so that you can continue to help them grow And progress at whatever it is that you're doing, then definitely feel free to connect with Brittany on Instagram. I will link to her Instagram in the show notes. But again, that is Satellite Pediatric Therapy Services in Pennsylvania. As always, thank you so much for listening. Remember that it helps us so much if you share this episode with anyone who you think would benefit from this information, whether it be speech pathologists, teachers, other therapists, or parents who just want to help their kids. Definitely share it. That'll help us so much. And it will also help out whoever it is that you're sharing the information with. Also, remember, it helps us out if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for being here and listening. I will see you in the next episode.